we started our Advent message series just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, remember what I've been talking to you about what Advent means. It means the coming of the Christ. And so we think about how Christ came to us, but we also remember that he didn't just come to stay in a manger. I mean, he came to redeem us, right? And so we also think about his second coming. And so in every Advent season, we're always kind of looking back and looking forward at the very same time. Now, in this series, I'm talking about the promise of Christmas. And there are actually a lot of promises that we get out of Christmas. So week number one, we talked about hope. Week number two, we talked about joy as a promise. And week number three today, I'm sorry, week number two, hope, love, and week number three, joy, right? We're going to talk about joy today. And, and here's kind of what we're doing. We're basically saying, where in the Christmas story do I find these things? Hope, love, and joy. Where can I find them? And what does it mean? And then eventually what we'll ask ourselves is, and what does it call us to do? What is this hope? What is this love that we have as a promise? And what is this joy? How does it call us to action? And so, by the way, these themes that I'm preaching on for this Christmas season are really the most traditional themes of Christmas. We even are lighting the Advent wreath with every one of those promises. And so we're asking ourselves, now where do we find this in the story? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1 with us. And we're today, the, uh, the, the, the focus of today is on Mary and Mary's story. And we're going to be reading something that is kind of classically known as the Magnificat, or which comes from basically the word magnificent or magnify. Mary hears the news about her pregnancy, and, and before it's over, she erupts in, in what we think is a song, and joy flows out of her. And, and she, in that song or in that psalm, she cries out that her soul wants to magnify God. Have you ever thought about that? Does your soul magnify God? Does it, does it make God big? And, and that's basically what her prayer was doing. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And um, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but I just want to read a portion of it. It says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness. I'm going to be talking today about lowliness, how God lifts the lowly. And notice that that's how Mary's song starts out. He has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. She saw herself as a servant. Now, this is Mary's story, right? And we're going to read more about that story and more of her words in a minute. But before I do that, can I just pause for a minute and remember with you who Mary is? Mary is a young girl. She's 13, 14, maybe 15 years of age. She's just found out she's pregnant and she's engaged, okay? She's never been with a man and she finds out the story that she's going to have a baby. And in the, in the uh, Mosaic law, you could be stoned to death for having some type of um, uh, relations outside of your own engagement. This is Mary's story. So I'm sure that her first response was shock. You can imagine with me, right? And I bet one of her next emotions was probably fear, not joy. Joy has not shown up for Mary yet. And uh, so let's remember that story for a minute. Mary meets with an angel. The angel says that God is going to overshadow her with his Holy Spirit and that she is going to have a baby. So Mary is from Nazareth, and we're going to study about Nazareth today, but Mary's from a little small little, small, small little place called Nazareth. 
And what she does upon hearing the news is she sets out on a journey to go to her cousin, whose name is Elizabeth. Now, this is an eight-day journey for her to journey from her hometown to her cousin Elizabeth. And she wants to go and meet with Elizabeth, who is a very godly woman, and Zechariah, her husband, who is a priest. And so when she gets there and she walks into the house, Elizabeth's house, by the way, Elizabeth is already six months pregnant herself, right? And when Mary calls out to her, you remember this story, right? She calls out to Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, her own baby inside of her own belly turns over and jumps uh, it leaps, the Bible says, leaps in her womb. Now, we know that that's going to be Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, right? And this is an amazing moment, but what's even more amazing than that is Elizabeth immediately, how, only by the power of God, she knows that Mary is pregnant. And not only does she know Mary's pregnant, but she knows that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. And so Elizabeth cries out after this very physical yet spiritual emotional moment. Elizabeth cries out, Hail Mary, full of grace. Have you ever heard that before? Many of you who grew up Catholic, you've heard this, right? Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of, of your womb. We, we call that, that, Catholics say those phrases all the time. That was born out of Elizabeth. Elizabeth's heart that day. So in her shock, Mary's, and in her fear, Mary's heart, she's probably wandered down a lot of different roads about where this thing's going. But this is the moment that joy arrives. When she hears Elizabeth confirm to her that she will have the Messiah, she begins this psalm, this song, the Magnificat, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord because he has looked upon me with favor, the lowliness of his, of, of his servant. You know, today I'm going to talk about one of the natures of God. This is the way God operates. God picks the lowly. He picks the rejected. He picks the thing that everybody else looks over and he wants to use it and bless it and do great things with it. This is how God works. Now, before I go and read all the rest of Mary's words, I brought a metaphor for you today. Do you know what this is? What is it? Charlie Brown's Christmas tree, right? So Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown's Christmas, um, last year they celebrated the 50th anniversary. Did you know that? In 1965, Charlie Brown's Christmas aired on TV. By the way, that was back when we only had three channels. You remember that back in those days? And here's the amazing thing about Charlie Brown's Christmas. When it aired on TV, did you know that 50% of the American population tuned into that initial broadcast? Which is amazing. 50% of Americans, there were so many TVs in America all tuned to the same station. And by the way, Charlie Brown's Christmas is shown every year since that moment. It is the second longest running animated movie and it's only been beaten out by the one who came out the year before. Anybody know what that was? 1964? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's right. And, and so both of these stories, I'm going to talk about Charlie's story this morning and that little tree that he chose. But what's amazing is Charlie Brown's Christmas and 
Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, those two little cartoons that came out, they remind us really of the very theme of what I'm going to preach about today. They remind us of these themes of Christmas, how God takes the low things of the world, the, the, the small things, the things that everybody else looked over, a misfit reindeer, right, and then does something great with it, right? It's those themes that are, that are lifted out of these movies. So if it's okay with you today, we're going to watch a little Charlie Brown. Is that all right? But before we do that, let me, can I just tell you, one of the things I love about this movie is which one of us haven't gone to the tree lot and looked through the tree lot and we saw these trees? Some of them look like, you know... Well, you know, it had some work on one side, and it was really, you know, and some of them were stumpy. That's not our tree. We're not getting, we're looking for the best tree, right? We're looking for the most beautiful tree. And we just passed tree by tree by tree, looking for the best tree, right? The greatest tree. Well, hey, let's watch this part of the movie. And if you remember, Charlie Brown goes with Linus to the Christmas tree farm, and he is on strict instructions, by the way, from Lucy herself. Lucy has told him to come back with one of those Nice, contemporary, rich aluminum trees. Remember and listen, and listen for the theme of God to pick the low things of the world. I don't know, Linus. I just don't know. Well, I guess we better concentrate on finding a nice Christmas tree. I suggest we try those searchlights, Charlie Brown. This really brings Christmas clothes to a person. the modern spirit. I don't care. We'll decorate it and it'll be just right for our play. Besides, I think it needs me. <laughs> I like how Charlie, Charlie Brown says, I think it needs me. You know, this, criti- this Christmas tree is a metaphor for us today and it's a picture of the lowly. It's a picture of the small, the thing that everybody else looks beyond it. They don't look to it. They look, they look around it. And many have looked over it. Many have rejected it. But Charlie Brown says, I see something beautiful in it, and it needs me. By the way, I want you to notice that same thing that happens in Rudolph, right? When Santa comes along and says, man, you can be the one to guide my sleigh tonight, right? So this theme, what I want to press upon you is this theme of the lowly being lifted up is a theme that we read over and over and over again in the scriptures that God is concerned with, that God is looking for, that God chooses, then blesses, then gives purpose to the thing that nobody else looks over. The thing that nobody else would pick. And that which everybody else has looked and put aside, God looks at it and says, I see potential in that. And I can do amazing things with that. When he does it with Mary, when joy shows up 
and a little servant girl is the one who God picks. Would you just listen to the joy in her words when it finally she finally understands it? The Magnificat. Here are her words. Mary said, Mary said, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. There's joy, right? Rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. And he, there it is, and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So I want to, last week I, I told you a couple of Greek words. Today I want to teach you that word lowly, okay? But it, maybe you write it in your notes because I don't have fill in the blanks during this series. It's very narrative. And so I'm just going to get you to take your own notes today, okay? Here's a word that Mary uses in the Greek when she says that he has looked upon the lowly, all right? And the word is tapanos, tapanos. So tapanos can mean several different things. Tapanos can mean pushed down. It can mean rejected. It can mean humiliated. It can mean the lowest of any rung on the ladder. And it can also mean just simply humble. And by the way, when Mary uses this word tapanos, She's giving us a picture of herself. She's saying, this is me. I'm low. I'm just a low person, all right? She is saying, I'm a humble, I'm a rejected, I'm a low person. And it's a good picture of who Mary was. Now, let me just take a minute to remind you of Mary. And then I want, you, I want to show you where Mary lived, okay? So Mary was just a young girl from the other side of the tracks. That's who Mary was. She did not, she did not come from wealth or education. She was a very poor girl. She would have been somewhere between the ages of 13 to 16 because at that time, historians tell us the life expectancy of a lady was 38 years. They didn't live very long. And so they started early. They started early in marriage. They started early in having children because they didn't have a long life expectancy. And, and she came from a town called Nazareth. And at that point, on most maps, Nazareth was, Nazareth was not even listed. It wasn't even on the maps of the day, historians tell us. As a matter of fact, in the time period that Mary lived in Nazareth, historians tell us there may have been 100 to just beyond 100 people that lived in that little small town. I want to show you a map real quick, just to remind you, especially if you've never maybe been to the Holy Land. I want to show you a couple of things about Nazareth. So if you look on this map, uh, up, here, uh, up here in the very top, can you, you can't really see my red thing, can you? Whoop. It's not working. Oh, no. Well, you see the Sea of Galilee? That's too bad that doesn't work. Work this morning. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, and sitting right up here in the very middle in red is Nazareth. Over here on the left, that other blue is uh, the, the, Med the Mediterranean Sea. Nazareth is about 17 miles from where it was over to the Mediterranean Sea, and it was about 15 miles to the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, you may not be able to see it on the map, but if you just look a little, there we are. Who, who did that? Some wonderful, per- oh, you brilliant guys, tech guys, tech guys. Point out Nazareth for me, if you will, on the map. So Nazareth is in the red. Can you find it? There you are right there, and there's Nazareth. And just, uh, just northwest of that is a little town called Sepphoris in the black right there. Now, what's interesting is Sepphoris was a big town. Sepphoris had tens of thousands of people in it. Sepphoris was a town that had a theater. It had universities. It had all the academia. It had rich people living there. It had the government living there. Sepphoris is where you would have expected Mary to be picked out of. But what's interesting was Nazareth was just a little dirt town. And as a matter of fact, most historians tell us that anybody who lived in Nazareth or one of those surrounding towns of Sepphoris were probably the servants who went in to serve the people who had all the money inside Sepphoris. Sepphoris was the big town of the day, not this little small town Nazareth. And how do I know that? Do you remember, for example, in John 1.46 when when Andrew and Peter found Nathanael, they said, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And do you remember what Nathanael said? He classically said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he was saying, that's just a little dirt down. And you're telling me that the Messiah has come from there? You see, guys, here's the idea. Get the idea. The idea is that Mary's like this little Charlie Brown Christmas tree, right? That Mary is of low estate, but she's been picked by God to do a great thing. By the way, I dare say everybody in this room, at some point in your life, you got picked. I mean, you got picked for a basketball pickup game. You got picked for the spelling bee. You got picked for something, and... Do you remember how good it made you feel to be picked? I mean, let me tell you, I've been on a basketball court, and um, I am a short white guy, you know? And I've been on the court with sometimes people who, who look like they could do a lot better than me, and when they picked me last, I, looked at, I thought to myself, I'm going to show you what I'm made of, you know? But if I ever got picked a little bit up the ladder, it made me feel so good, you know? It makes you feel good when you get picked. And I want to tell you, The lower you are, the more humble you are, the better it makes you feel to be picked. And Mary got picked. Now, what I want you to grasp, get the idea here, is that not only does God do this with Mary, God is doing this over and over again because this is who God is. So not only is God picking Mary, a little girl who is of low estate, he's picking Joseph. And the Bible tells us that Joseph was a carpenter. It uses the word tecton. He was a... He was a person who worked with his hands. It doesn't even tell us he was an architecton, which we get that word architect from. He wasn't even a manager of tectons. He was just a guy who worked with his hands. He was not a very, very wealthy guy, a very educated guy at all. He's just Joseph. And then where, where do we get the rest of the story? God picks a little town called Bethlehem, a little, little outpost outside of Jerusalem. That's going to be the place where he's going to choose the Messiah. And then guess what he does? He picks these shepherds, right, who were the lowest of the lowest of the low on the socioeconomic scale. He picks them to come and see the birth first. See, what I want you to see is that this is the nature of God. God continually, strategically has a heart for the low thing. He has a heart for that, and he goes after it. That's who God is. And by the way, when I pick up my Bible, 
I don't just see this in the, in the Christmas story. I can find it anywhere I look. You see, for example, let me give you a few examples. God picks Abraham and Sarah to birth a great nation. They're barren, they're old, and they can't even have children. And he says, I want you. I'm going to pick you to do a great thing with this nation. And then God picks the nation of Israel, this slave nation, this nation that nobody would look at and think a great thing could be done done with. And God says, I want you. I'm going to save the world through you. He does it over and over again. When he's ready to save his people from Egypt, who does he pick? He pick a, picks a guy named Moses who literally is a goat herder out in the wilderness, lost as can be, and trying to run from life. And he says, that's the one I want. I'm going to use him. You remember that story of Samuel going to, to Jesse's house to go he believes God's calling him to anoint a new king, and he ushers every one of the sons in front of him, oldest to the youngest, and he, he thinks when the oldest one gets there, he thinks, surely this one's going to be, this looks like the best one of all. Look how strong and handsome he is, and God says, nope, 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 until there's nobody left, and Samuel says, but God is not saying any of those. Surely you have another son, and Jesse says, well, I mean, I got, I got the youngest one. He's out in the fields. It's David. He's short. The Bible calls him ruddy. Samuel says, I'm not leaving until you bring him in. And he walks in, and God whispers in Samuel's ear, this is the one I want who will be the next king of Israel. What I'm trying to tell you is this is the way God operates over and over and over again. This is the what I call the the oper- operatus mundi, the, the operational mode of God. This is the way God works. And by the way, when Mary, Mary knows this very well, because when she says her Magnificat, she says things like, God has lifted the lowly and he has filled the hungry with good things. She knew what it was like to be hungry. He's filled the hungry with good things. So here's my question for you. I want to pose something that I bet you've never thought about before, okay? Here's my question for you, a couple of questions. First one is this. If you're watching a sporting event, let's just say it's a baseball game or a football game or it's a boxing match. If you're watching a sporting event and you don't have a dog in the fight, you don't really care who wins or lose, who do you normally pull for? Who do you root for to win the competition or the fight? Who is that? Did you hear how many people said that? The underdog. You root for the guy who looks like, or the team that looks like they can't win. By the way, I know what that's like because last night I was doing it again. I'm sitting in front of the TV at a holiday Christmas party and Army is playing Navy. This is one of the greatest matchups of every year, right? But this is one of those years where it looks like Army can't win. Navy should by all means blow Army off. And who wins, by the way? Did you watch it? Army won. David beat Goliath, right? And I'm sitting there pulling for Army, hoping the clock will expire. Come on, I'm rooting for the underdog. Now, here's what I want to ask you, and I want you to wrestle with this question, because maybe you've never asked yourself this. Why? Why do you root for the underdog? Why is there something in you that wants the, the little one to beat the big one? Why? I mean, have you ever thought about it? If you just thought, I don't know, I just thought I was wired that way. Or maybe you thought, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I just want to see if it can happen, you know? 
Can I tell you that I think it's so much more? I think one of the reasons, and you may have never thought about it this way, that we root together for the underdog, and that as humans, we all do this, is because the Bible tells us you were made in the imago dei, in the image of God. And God always prefers the lesser. God does not choose the big ones. God chooses the small ones. And see, I think for the Christian and I think for the atheist and the agnostic alike, I think we're all rooting for the underdog. Because it doesn't matter where our faith is, we were all made in the image of God. And we were all made to be like Him. See, God will choose the low thing of the world that everybody else has looked over and He will lift it up. Now, maybe you learned this lesson a long time ago, and so all of your life, you've tried to do that. Maybe you've looked and you've seen those who were poor or hungry, those who had less or were less educated, or, or they, were, they, they, they had self-doubt, or they didn't have confidence, and you looked at those people who didn't have as much talent. And maybe you, you have always tried to, to lift them up or pick them onto your team. But can I just tell you, normally when we do that, when we do this thing, when we, when we imitate God and we pick the, the weak and the lowly and the less educated, when we do that, other people don't understand that. They don't get that. How do I know that? I know that from watching Charlie Brown. You remember what happens when Charlie Brown brings his tree back into the room? Let's watch what happens when he brings his tree into the Christmas pageant. And here's what I want to tell you. If you try to do what God does and you try to pick the lowly and the weak and the less educated and those that nobody else looks at as any talented, everybody else looks over, it will happen to you too. Watch this. Say, by the way, can you play Jingle Bells? No, no. I mean, jingle bells. You know, deck them halls and all that stuff. No, no. You don't get it at all. I mean, jingle bells. You know, Santa Claus and ho, 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 and mistletoe and presents to pretty girls. That's it! We're back. Boy, are you stupid, Charlie Brown. What kind of a tree is that? You are supposed to get a good tree. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I told you he'd goof it up. He's not the kind you can depend on to do anything right. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown. Completely hopeless. Rats! You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. What a tree! <laughs> Even the dog gets in on the act. You see, you see, the world doesn't understand this God concept. That the world, when, whenever you try to follow God's image like this, they'll make fun of you too. And that's what I want to help you understand, guys. Uh, one of the things I think we do when we read this story is we have to ask ourselves. Am I lifting the lowly? 
Am I doing the God thing that he does all the time? Where do I find myself in the story, right? Where do I find myself? Now watch this. I used to have a theological professor uh, in school that he said in the story of God, normally you'll find something that he called good news, bad news, good news. He said, whenever the good news shows up, and by the way, that's what happened when the angel came to Mary, good news, the Messiah is coming, and he's coming through you, that normally meant bad news for somebody else, all right? Did you read that in the Magnificat at all? It meant bad news because when she was saying about the poor, they would be lifted up. She was saying, and the rich, and the proud, right? Even in your outline, for example, grab your outline and read that scripture with me real quickly. In your outline, I put a, I put a second reading below. In the reading above, I highlighted the words lowliness and lifted the lowly and hungry and servant. But in the one below, I want you to notice what I've highlighted. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Now listen. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And he scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones, and he's lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty. You see, one of the things I think we're supposed to ask ourselves when we read the Mary's Magnificat is, where am I in this story? And I think most of us would have to say, very confessionally, that we're more like the other people that Mary says God is doing a different deal with. I mean, we're rich, right? We are powerful. We are influential. That is who we are. And oftentimes we are proud. That's who we are. So we have to find ourselves in this story. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, which one of these things am I more like? Am I more like Mary? Or am I more like the ones that she's saying God is bringing to their needs and humbling them? And you know, knowing that we are proud, knowing that we are influential, what I wanted to share with you was a story today to remind you that Out of lowliness comes joy. We're going to get to that in just a second. But when the lowliness is picked, joy overflows. And one of the things God wants you and I to do over and over again is choose the low place. Choose the servant place. Choose the place of low estate. Remember Jesus in the last message he had to his disciples? What did he do? I mean, he took off his outer garment, he took a a bowl and a basin, and he started washing their feet. It was the last big leadership lesson he could give to them. He was saying, listen, don't try to be the best. Don't try to be the lead. Don't try to be everybody else. I'm going to be the boss. He said, be the servant in the room. Be the lowest one in the room. He was teaching them about God's path. And so I wanted to read that scripture to to you right there. I put in your outline, James 4, 6. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. We were reading this in my small group this past week. God opposes the proud. That word in the Greek literally means like a boxing stance. God squares off. He is ready to battle with those who are proud. He will not let you win when you are proud. Do you get that? God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace or shows favor to the humble. And so I would tell you guys this Christmas, what we need to do in our heart of hearts is humble ourselves and seek that humility that Mary was, right? That low estate. C.S. Lewis, when he was talking about humility, he said a great quote and I wanted to share it with you today. It's worth writing down in your notes. C.S. Lewis said these words, 
He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself by that, oh, I'm not very good, I'm, I'm not very smart. That's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. That's a picture of what humility is. And so read this scripture with me from James 4.10, the brother of Jesus. James said this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You know, one of the things I've learned about God is that when I don't humble myself, there's normally going to be a moment that God's going to plan for me to humble me. And that's a lot more painful than when you really humble yourself. And so James is, is encouraging us, humble yourself. You don't want the pain of having to have God humble you. Humble yourself. Choose the low, the servant. Choose that path for you instead. And then guess what the promise is? And he will lift you up. Why? Because God lifts the lowly. So here's the deal. When, when we lift the lowly, when we are doing the thing that God wants us to do, God lifts us up. And when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. That's how God operates. You see, and this is the call of God out of this story of joy. The call of God is for us to look for those who are the lowly and lift them up and understand that in the process, God will take care of us and he will lift us up. And so when you see someone that you can serve and you lift them up, here's what you already know. Whenever you serve somebody who has less than you or is less than you, your heart is overflowing with joy. You know what that's like? When you really do something awesome for somebody else who doesn't have a lot, your heart overflows with joy. This past week, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I'm sitting in my office with, with a, a person who's going through one of the hardest struggles in their life. I mean, the world is upside down for them. And their hope and their joy, as all that stuff has walked out of the room. Even their, their purpose to live, it, they're struggling with it right now. And I'm thinking to myself, the worst thing you can do right now is be prideful and say, well, I'm just going to figure this out myself. What you really need to do is you need to humble yourself and say, God, what do you want to do? You're, you're, you're teaching me something here. And then, and then, watch this, and then look outside of yourself. Look outside of yourself and go serve somebody. Go act like what you know God would call you to do. Go love on somebody. Go do for somebody. And you watch, you watch your joy come in like a flood. Because whenever you start lifting the lowly and you get over your little pity party and you get over your little sorry self and you start looking to do for somebody else, whenever that happens, joy floods back in. Purpose comes back because this is what God says. Humble yourself and I will lift you up. You want joy? You want joy? You look beyond the, 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 the tauntings, you know. Oh, Charlie Brown, you're so stupid. You look beyond all that. And you do the God thing of lifting the lowly and you watch the joy that flows out of you. So I wanted to show, by the way, all of us have seen Charlie Brown, right? I mean, everybody's seen Charlie Brown, right? I wanted to show you the classic scene. You all remember it, right? Linus stepping forward. Actually, it comes right after this piece where they've just made fun of Charlie Brown. But I was watching it. Now, I've seen this since I was a kid. And preparing to preach this message for you and watching Charlie Brown's Christmas all over again, I noticed something that I never really noticed. Hey, would you just watch Charlie Brown's face when he steps up to the edge of the, of the Christmas tree right at the end of this clip? Watch his face. 
Maybe you'll know what's in his heart. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Makes you want to go home and watch Charlie Brown Christmas, doesn't it? It's a very simple message about joy this morning. You want real joy? Humble yourself. Humble yourself and look around you and lift the lowly up. And if you will humble yourself, whatever that looks like for you, think less of yourself like C.S. Lewis did. I'm sorry, think of yourself less like C.S. Lewis said. Whenever you humble yourself and you start to lift up others, God will lift you up and give you joy. So I want to close because every week I've been closing with a question. I want to close with a sobering question today, and I want you to think about it for yourself, okay? And here's the question. When you get around the lowly, when you're in the presence of those who have less than you, and who everybody else looks over. Do they feel encouraged by you? Do they, feel, do they feel strengthened by you? Do they feel like you would pick them? Do they feel like you're a friend to them? Do they feel like that they draw power from you? And that they draw joy and hope from you? This Christmas season, my challenge to you is Choose the humble place. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And then choose the God path. See, we're Christ followers, aren't we? Not all of us are, but we're, we're thinking about it. If you're going to be a Christ follower, it means trying to be like Christ. And over and over again, He chose the low. He chose the small. 
He chose the insignificant and the outcast. He chose the thing that everybody else looked beyond. And he's calling you to do the same. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to say thank you for coming. You came to this little dusty planet and you chose just not very much to make it much and to be your redemption plan for the world. We need to ask forgiveness this morning because we, are, we have been raised in a society that says choose yourself and do for yourself and look out for number one. But every time we come back to your word, it says that we're actually supposed to look and act different than that. That we are actually supposed to be like you. We're supposed to see your model of humbling ourselves and being the servant of all in the room. Oh, Jesus, make us the servants of our families, the servants of our workplace. Make us the servants in our companies and help us to be the greatest servants of all. And Lord, help us to lift the lowly like you do and trust that in the end, you will lift us up and you'll give us joy. We don't need to pat ourselves on the back or say, look at me. We need to do the exact opposite, God. And we need to pick up a basin and a towel. We need to wash others' feet. We need to do for them. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that this week, wherever we would go, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, with our families, wherever we would go, that those who are the least and the lowly, that they, when we get around them, would feel like in us they have a friend. And in us they have someone who will always choose them and look out for them. And may you be born in us today. Your spirit, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In the next few minutes, as we give to your kingdom gain, multiply our gifts for your great good news to spread all around the world. We give generously, and we thank you for even allowing us to be a part of your redemptive work on this planet. Take our gifts far beyond our reach and multiply them, and may every dollar we give go in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.